Henry Cooper's nothing but a tramp. He's a bum. I'm the world's greatest. He must fall in five rounds, but if you talk about me, I'll cut it three. I'll never fight another fella as tough as Doug Jones, not even that big, ugly, bear Sonny Lister. Is he your next fight? Well, after I annihilate this Henry Cooper, I want that bear. And what's going to happen to him? Bad. What's going to happen to him? He might be great, but he'll fall in eight. I'm the prettiest fighter in the ring today. That's my label. The man to beat me hasn't been born yet. Well, I'll tell Henry Cooper, if he's watching this show, to come to the fight and be ready to fight. Because I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to London to get you. And after I'm through beating him, I think you'll have to join the Beatles and be a singer. All people watching this interview, I'm seriously trying to get Joe Frazier and George Foreman in one night and to go down as the greatest fight of all time. Some of them still have doubt. They're making excuses. I want to whoop both of these men in one night and I'll have a record that nobody can touch. I'm going to do something to Joe Frazier that might be illegal. My lawyers told me to bring a bail's bondsman to get me out of jail. They might put my tail in jail and get me out on bail after what I do to Joe Frazier. I predict that this will be Buster's last stand. I will do the Buster what the Indians did to Custer. I'm going to wipe him out. And I'm going to prove that I am still the real champion. And I want them all to tune in to watch Buster ling on. What's going to happen when you meet Smokey Joe? And I said, Joe's going to come out smoking, and I ain't going to be joking. I'll be pecking and a poking. Pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. Some people say, you better watch Joe Frazier. He's awful strong. I said, tell him to try band roll on. That's the odor. How are you guys doing out there? Good? Great to see you on this last uh, Sunday in, in June, right? Almost July. Uh, well, if you've been praying for our uh, property stuff, uh, keep praying. We've got a big meeting tomorrow at 11 o'clock to kind of discuss with the potential buyer uh, as the pl as plans for the uh, study period of that end. So uh, we'll keep you posted on that. Um, to get us into our message today, if you were here on, uh, at the very beginning, you saw the Jenna Maroney character from 30 Rock doing a little uh, backdoor bragging. And then, of course, who can forget Muhammad Ali? Uh, you'll see how that fits into our message and passage today pretty quick. But first, let me, let me do what John Oliver would do, which is uh, look at last week just a little bit. Uh, Paul last week unveiled this incredible news after basically one, two, three and a half, two and a half chapters in Romans of really bad news for everybody on earth. Everybody's got a problem. Uh, but God uh, unveiled for Paul through Paul last week this righteousness of God that is bestowed upon us by not us, but by God right? It's attained by faith, trusting in Jesus Christ, who was sent as a gift to us by the grace of God, meaning that God did not have to. He just chose to. And the result of this gift is that the righteousness of God, God's righteousness, being as good as God, was bequeathed to us, imputed to us, if you will, uh, credited to us as if we'd never had sin. We were justified, innocent of the crime of sin uh, before God because of that faith that we are expressing in Christ. Now, the gift to us, as we discussed, was free, but it didn't come cheap because the currency of the payment was Christ's own blood. We're told that he was our redemption, a word from the slave market. So Christ redeemed us. He basically went to the slave market, paid the price for us, and then set us free. And this worked 
because as we were told, the innocent blood of Christ propitiated, big fancy Nancy word meaning simply this, his blood satisfied, appeased God's wrath for our sin. And what Jesus did demonstrated to the entire universe that God was not a compromising God by letting us in, sinners, into heaven. He did not let man's sin slide. No, he was a righteous God, taking out his anger and wrath against evil that we deserved on his perfect, innocent son, Christ. And he didn't force Christ into it. Christ was a willing volunteer. And that was all last week. Today in our passage, God's going to expect us to think through just a little bit the implications of this incredible salvation. So let me just pray for us, and we will jump in. God, thank you for your word, which gives us truth that we would not know otherwise. Thank you for deigning to share you and your son with us. We pray as we dig into Romans this morning, you would uh, help us have hearts that hear, minds that understand, and wills that will line up with you. May we be changed from our time with you this morning. So, As a result of this amazing salvation, Romans 3, starting at verse 27. Based on that, what God has done, what what then becomes of our boasting, Paul asks? If, If Paul, salvation that you outlined is actually true, then what becomes of the self righteous braggadocio of mankind? Can man stand at the foot of the cross and brag about anything that he has done that has contributed to his salvation? Can he stand before God and claim some credit? And if so, is the church basically full of pretty righteous people who've done quite a bit for their salvation, and kind of moderately good people who've done some things for their salvation, and then some really weak lizard kind of people who've just done a little bit and just sort of slipped in? Uh, Is that what the kingdom of God is like? Is that what the church is like? Some people can boast a whole lot because of what they've done. Some people can boast just a little bit, and some people can just kind of barely squeak out a a little brag, right? Where is The boasting, Paul asks, and then he answers, it is excluded. The Greek word translated excluded really literally means shut out. The door is slammed on our boasting about anything with regard to our salvation. And the righteousness we have, we did not get any of it because of anything we did. No one who is saved is going to utter a word ever or pat himself on the back for something that he did that contributed to this salvation. Ephesians says it like this, for by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man could boast. This quote I got on the screen, I think coming up from Martin Luther, actually kind of makes the point, it might be worth reading it, I usually don't read the screen, but it's a powerful statement. He says this, as long as a man, woman, child, is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident and does not utterly despair of himself and so is not humbled before God. Such a man, woman, child, plans out for himself a position, an occasion, a work which shall bring him final salvation but which will not. In other words, In terms of the contribution you and I make with regard to our salvation, all humanity is excluded from boasting. We are included in the family of God only by grace. Now, we talked about grace last week, but it means that God gave us something for absolutely no reason. He didn't have to. He wasn't paying us back for something that we did. We did not 
earn it. See, grace and self-righteousness, our thinking that we've somehow earned something, are totally incompatible. If you have one, you cannot have any of the other because grace, as we discussed, is something given without any merit, without any reason, without cause, right, to the recipient. If there is self-righteousness, if it's justified, then you have earned your righteousness. And if you have, then grace has nothing to do with it, no part of it. Because self-righteousness demands compensation. See, if you, if you work all week and you are owed a wage, your boss cannot come up to you with a paycheck and say, look, I'm just, I just want to know, I just feel really good towards you, I'm going to give you this out of the goodness of my heart. <laughs> Why can't he not say that? Because he owes you that paycheck. You worked for it. Grace is only grace if it is bestowed on the totally holy undeserving. So if grace is involved in salvation, there is absolutely no boasting from you or me in this scenario, whereas pride does not exist, does not exist. We are beggars, flat broke. We don't contribute a dime, a nickel, a penny to our salvation. We come to God with empty hands, and it's his grace get given to us. A couple years ago, I got the urge to study through the book of Exodus just for fun because, you know, hey, why not <laughs> Exodus? And it was so fun that I actually thought, you know, sometime we might actually preach through that here uh, sometime before I die. Uh, but during this study, I came across something that I just thought was, uh, well, for me, hilarious. I got a far side sense of humor, and I just thought it was, frankly, it made me chuckle. Uh, and I just kind of logged it into the recesses of my brain. And when I was preparing this message a couple of weeks ago, it just popped out. And I think, I think it popped out because it's a really great illustration of kind of God's thinking on this whole point about, you know, grace from him and bragging from us. Uh, here's the scenario. In Exodus chapter 20, God has Israel uh, fresh from their rescue by him from the slavery in Egypt. They're sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai in the desert, and God is uh, kind of on the top of the mountain, and he's terrifying, and so terrifying that the people down below are supposed to be gathered at the foot of the mountain. They go, how about, how about this? Moses, you, you go up there. You talk to that guy. We're going to just kind of, kind of stand back. Away. We don't want anyone to be near the foot of this mountain just in case, you know, something, some lava comes out and gets us. They're terrified of what's going on up there. But anyway, they're there. And God gives them the Ten Commandments. We all know about that. What you don't know is what immediately after he gives them the Ten Commandments, he throws out some really interesting kind of uh, instructions, admonitions. And it starts in verse 22. The Lord says to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You, you guys, have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. He's right up there on the mountain. He's visited with them. You shall not make any gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves uh, gods of gold. In other words, you Jews have seen me up close and personal. (laughs) I don't need you to make some kind of a fashioning of me. I'm bigger than anything you're going to fashion anyway. Don't make any images, right? I'm the only God there is. You know that. You're going to do short, short work of me if you try to make an image of me. Verse 24, God seems to say, okay, well, but, but if you insist, if you feel like you've got to make something, you want to do something, here's what you can do. Here's the only thing you can do. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I've caused my name to be remembered, that is, any place where something really spectacular has happened that I've done for you, you can build an altar there and you can come and sacrifice in praise and worship of me of what I have accomplished. The thought is, don't make an image of me, don't make an image of anything else, make an altar. 
They come in the place where spectacular things have happened, where I've blessed you, and you can offer sacrifices for what I have done. I'll let you make altars, and you can boast in me. You can use dirt to make an altar. And verse 25, variation. If you happen to want to do something else, you can make an altar of stone. And if you make me an altar of stone, he says in verse 25, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. So you can use dirt and you can use rocks. But if you use rocks, I don't want to hear one plink of a hammer or a chisel. I don't want to hear one stone cracking on another. You will not make your altars in such a way as to glorify you or your handyman skills. You're not going to work to make your altar prettier than everybody else's. Because I just know what's going to happen, God's thinking. If you make an altar of stones to make a sacrifice, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be in the middle of that, that work. And you're going to say, yeah, this puppy's looking pretty good. But I think, you know, I can make it even neater if I just kind of rounded off some of the edges of the rocks. I don't want you doing that, God says, and here's why. If you do that, the guy down the road is going to say, hey, look what Adubadiah over there did. Well, I'm going to round off the edges of all my stones. And then the next guy is going to look at that and go, I think I can put the family crest on that sucker, make it look even more pretty. Then the next guy is going to say, I think I can throw some paint on there and make it even more elaborate. And pretty soon you'll have all these people trying to outdo everybody with their altars. God says, I'm not going to have it. When you make an altar, there's to be zero part of you, no work by you in fashioning that. You can use the stuff I made, earth and rocks, that's it. As I made them, all I want to see out of you is faith and trust and worship. Your works are not going to be part of this. I will not have one believer trying to outdo another believer on the basis of how good their altar is. And you can almost see from what's coming up that sort of the mind of the divine, the divine wheels turning up there. And he says, okay, I, I, I know what these guys are going to do. I know how these guys think. I know what they're going to do. They're going to say, well, okay, if I can't make an altar like I want to to show off my great skills, show off my works, I can't make it out of anything else. I can't, I, oh, he didn't say anything about making it taller. I can make my altar taller. My buddy over there is going to have a two-foot altar, but I'll have a three-foot. And then the next guy's going to have four, the next guy's going to have six, and pretty soon it'll be a two-story altar. So God says, okay, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to beat you to the punch. Verse 26. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness not be exposed on it. God says, okay, let me just deal with this before you guys even get started, because I know what you're thinking. I'm not going to have you guys trying to outdo each other by making your altars taller either, either. He put it like this, you got to keep it low enough that you can sacrifice on it without going up steps. I don't want your nakedness exposed on it as you head up the steps. I don't want to see anybody seeing anything of you in this, much less your privates, right? God was against upskirting long before there were cameras, okay? Interestingly, I don't know if you know this, back in 2014, a lot of upskirting cases were thrown out because the laws were not on the books that covered it. So most states have now rewritten the laws to cover that. All they're doing is catching up with God on that issue. Just some, so I thought that was interesting. Anyway, altars were to be God-focused, not us-focused. I'm not interested in you putting your altars together as a competitive sport. It's not about you, not about your efforts. It's about me, what I've done. I have bestowed grace on you, blessings on you, not because you are so wonderful. And you're going to prove, as my people, that you're not that wonderful as we go through history. I'm great. You are not. Your part in all this, nothing but faith, trust, 
worship. That's it. So you see how it was in the Old Testament. When you come to me, God's acceptance of us has zero to do with our works, with our expertise, with us. It's not on the basis of, wow, look at that cool altar Adubadiah built. Well, the truth is, is that still true today? It's true in the Old Testament, is it true today? Listen to Paul's words out of Galatians. Far be it from me, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. See, Christ did, Christ alone. That's the only reason we can approach God. Back to Romans 3. So what becomes a boasting? Excluded. Well, by what kind of law? By law of works? No. Law of faith. Interesting phrase Paul uses there. Law of faith. So there is a standard. There is a requirement. There is kind of a law. But it's a law of faith, meaning that the only thing that heaven requires of you and me, a human being, to enter heaven is faith. And Paul already, as you know from last time we've talked about this, the faith he's talking about is faith and trust in Christ. So he just assumes that you'd remember that from two sentences ago, right? There's no other name given among men under heaven by which a man must be saved. Jesus kind of reiterated that. There is no one that comes to the Father but through me, he said. That's the law of faith. I think it might be worthwhile to spend just a moment talking about faith. Um, I've seen a common mistake in people of faith, Christians. I've known people who seem to be preoccupied with the amount of faith they have or don't have. And sometimes I think this cripples their spiritual walk, even their joyous Christians. So, a family member gets sick. I mean, really sick. Mortally sick. Maybe somebody tells that person uh, as a Christian, you know, uh, your family member, that, hey, if you just have enough faith... God can move mountains. He can heal them. So you, you, you pray your heart out for healing. You, you trust, you have faith that God's going to heal your family member. But they die. You do one of two things. You either beat yourself up for killing your family member because you lacked the faith to he- get them healed. Or you blame God for not answering your prayer for healing because you had all the faith in the world. So it must be that God's the one that screwed up. And you get angry with him and you kick him to the curb. You either kick you to the curb or you kick God to the curb. I I think that the problem does not have much to do with faith. It has to do with the object of our faith. Not a lack of faith, it's what the object of your faith is. And to be honest, I've I've intentionally taken this Bono quote uh, out of context in which he made it. He was talking more about our personal responsibility to step up and do the right thing individually rather than sort of stand back and let somebody else take on the ownership of the heavy lifting. But the quote does lend itself to a point about what really is the legitimate object of our faith. Is it the rich? I mean, is it the famous? Is it the politicians? Is it, is it you Is it me? See, it's easy to fall into the trap of you and me seeking to have faith in our faith when we're supposed to have faith in Jesus. I don't have time to fully go into all of the angles on this today, but I'll say, look, that we are called as Christians to walk by faith. And God tells us what faith is. It is hearing God's word and believing it to be true. Now, I personally don't believe that there's anybody alive ever 
or will ever be alive who has waltzed through life as a Christian and never had any questions for God about, you know, something that God said we should do and live out in real time. Jesus did. Read about the Garden of Gethsemane. We all do. We all struggle sometimes with believing what God said is true is true. I have prayed for my wife for healing for nine years. Hasn't happened yet. But you know what? I don't see anywhere in Scripture that God has said that Jackie or me or you will never be afflicted in this life. I've got faith that God could heal her. I'd like him to desperately. I pray for that every day. And he might. But I got to tell you, she is not feeling poorly because she or I do not have enough faith. Faith is hearing what God says, believing it to be true, and living that out as if it's true. Now, I am totally open, totally open to God coming to me and saying, Dwayne, I just want you to know, I'm healing her on Tuesday. I'm healing her on Tuesday. And if he does that, I am all in, and I'll tell you why. Because he came to me once while I was standing in my living room, holding an infant named Caleb, who was severely brain damaged and totally blind. Had some praise music on, just holding this kid, rocking back and forth. Suddenly, I don't know how to describe it. I was like enveloped, surrounded, like I was inside something in that room. And in, I don't know how to describe it, any other than like a spiritual cocoon or whatever, God spoke and he said, pray for his eyes. I would love to say that I did that immediately. (laughs) But I didn't. I was like the guys at the foot of the Mount Sinai, just a little bit terrified of the presence of God. And I'm thinking, hmm, what if I do pray and nothing happens? Maybe I'm not really hearing God speak at all. Maybe it's just my own wants and desires. Maybe I'm inventing this. So I, I wrestled. I wrestled. I said, you know, look, God, this, this guy's mangled. His body's mangled. How about we just pray for the whole body? And God kept saying, eyes. Pray for the eyes. I don't really, I can't even tell you how long I stood there. But in the end, I stopped wrestling and I just prayed. Two days later, the doctors proclaim a miracle. Retina's magically reattached. Vision restored. So see, I know God can. But that has not happened with Jackie yet. Faith is not you and me wanting something, so God's got to do it. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. And while I'm at it, let me just say this. I don't think we as humans have a problem with faith at all. I think we are faith-loving and faith-exercising beings. I think God made us that way. I will agree with Mr. Butterworth on that point. Right? We take people at their word. We trust certain news anchors to tell us what's going on in the world. We have faith and put our money in the banks or with investors. We put our lives into the hands of doctors or, some of you, hairdressers. We eat at restaurants and we eat whatever they serve us. We swallow pills given to us by the pharmacist with absolutely no idea what's in them. We trust that the hamburger is beef and not dog. Right? We trust the guy who inspected the elevator. We trust our kids to their teachers and schools. We have faith in the handyman and the plumber. We live by faith on our roads that the people around us will do the same thing and not kill us. We exercise faith all the time. But it's there that my agreement with Butterworth ends. He taught not a faith in Christ, but a faith in man. Jesus is not God, we are. We just have to unearth the God in each of us. But such faith in Scripture is not saving faith. Scripture tells us that 
faith becomes saving faith when it's placed in Jesus Christ and him alone. And that faith is based on what God's word has declared about our salvation and Jesus' part in it. It's not some invention of the human mind. And faith exercised as a Christian is the same. What does God say about how I should live? How I should do right now with regard to him and other people? A life of faith is Jesus, right? In Jesus is responding to what God says is true. It's letting him lead. It's giving way so that his power can enable our lives. He will lead us to salvation by faith in Christ and that he leads us every day after that by us trusting in what he says by our faith in Christ. And this faith in Christ in Jesus Christ that saves us eliminates human pride. Totally. No boasting. See, to get a human being who is a sinner into the presence of God who is holy, there's only one way. One way that happens. God must provide a divine man, a willing sacrifice to take the death penalty for our sins. So whatever religious system you want to buy into, it better offer an incarnation of God, which is the only way that a perfect, sinless human life could be lived. You've got to bypass the sin nature that Adam gave us all. Whatever religious system you want to buy into is better offer a willing death, the punishment of my sin taken on by him. Whatever religious system you want to buy into better offer a resurrection from the dead to demonstrate that that sacrifice was worthy by God to be accepted. The only way that a God of holiness can be approached is through Christ. It's not because God just arbitrarily chose that. It's the only way because that's the only way that the wrath of God could be satisfied, that the justice of God could be satisfied through Christ. So where's our boasting? Where's our boasting in that? There ain't none based on what we've done. By what kind of law? Law of works? <laughs> no, we're not going to earn it. Because that were the case, we could all brag. Look what we did. No, it's, we didn't do anything. Law of faith, come by faith. Trust God's word about what Jesus did and worship, just like at the foot of the mountain, just like on the altars in the Old Testament. Verse 28 says this, for we hold that one is justified, which means declared completely innocent of sin, apart from works, by faith, right? Paul uses the royal we here, because he's referring to the, basically, the common, common view of all of the apostles of the early church. See, if there was lots of ways to approach God other than Christ, and Christ is just one of many angles, one of many avenues, Christ would not be all up in our face about everything. Nobody would be upset, but it's just intimidating that nothing we could ever do or have done or will do is going to contribute one bit to our salvation. Exclusively faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone that shuts us up from our boasting. Now, the book of Acts tells us this. This whole point, faith in Christ alone, was challenged all the time. New Christians, uh, especially by Jewish converts, were told, look, fine, you guys. Go ahead, accept Christ. It's okay. It's okay. That's fine. But, but to be truly saved... You've got to have a plus one. You've got to keep the Jewish law. And, and, if, and if you've been here through the book of Romans, you should be on the floor laughing right now. You should be howling with ridicule over this concept. Because all Romans 1, 2, and 3 basically have told us is that no Jew ever kept the law. But now we're going to tell people, you've got to keep the law. By people who never kept the law. I think, I think that's funny. Just me. So they fought back. Paul, Peter, all those guys. Peter said this, look, I, I went to a guy, I went to a Roman, I went to a Roman centurion, we got the name of Cornelius. He's a Gentile, not a Jew. I shared the gospel message with him and the Lord descended from heaven and saved that sucker. So I've seen Romans get saved and they're the worst of the worst. They're the worst of the worst. 
So we, Peter says, uses the same word like Paul, we believe we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way the Gentiles are, not by keeping Jewish law, as if anyone ever did. There's a law, all right? It's not a Jewish law that saves. It's the law of faith. It's always been the law of faith. In the Old Testament, you couldn't come to God any way you want to. You approach Jehovah through the faith and the shedding of a blood of an innocent critter that dies in your place. Why? Because you could not keep it the law. You routinely violated it. So coming to God was always through the sacrifice of this critter, right? That was a picture of what the Messiah was going to do permanently, right? That was the law of faith in effect in the Old Testament. It's just the same thing now. So implication one of the gospel. Can we logically as Christians be arrogant and boastful? Can we be proud? It's excluded. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be amazed, I think, at the people that made it that I didn't think would. And I'm going to be amazed at the people I thought would make it and didn't. And I'm going to be amazed that I am there myself. Boasting is excluded. Second thing we find is this. Salvation eliminates prejudice. Totally. Paul says this. Or is God the God of Jews only in verse 29? Why does Paul say that? Well, if you were saved by the keeping of the Jewish law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the hygienic law, if you had to keep the law to be saved, who's going to occupy space in heaven? Jews. Because <laughs> they're the only ones that have the law. So they're the only ones that could possibly keep it. Heaven would be a very Semitic place. But Paul says, is God the God of Jews only? Seriously? Now, the interesting thing is that no Jew would have actually agreed with that. They all knew that Adam, a non-Jew, was the father of all mankind. They knew that Abraham, a non-Jew, was the father of the Jewish nation. First verses of the kids would learn out of Deuteronomy was this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. What that means is, for them, the, God is the Lord over the entire earth and over every person on the earth. They knew that God was God over everyone, that God was the God for everyone. They just kind of mistakenly concluded that if those people were going to get saved, they had to become Jews first. They missed the purpose of the law entirely which was to make people recognize that they broke it and needed a savior. Right? But if you hold that salvation is through keeping of the law, now God is not God over all mankind, but just God of the Jews because they're the only ones that have the law. Here's what Paul says. No way. Is he not the God of the Gentile also? Yeah. He's the God of the Gentiles too. Since God is one, he uses their own memorized verse to make the point. God's going to justify the circumcised. That's the Jew. But how's he going to do it? By faith. How's he going to justify the Gentile? Ooh, same way. By faith. Not by the law, by faith. The route to salvation is not through being Jewish, but through faith in Christ. It's the path for the Jew. It's the path for the Gentile. And by the way, that covers everyone on earth. Paul's broken the population of the earth into two parts, the Jews and non-Jews. And basically, everybody in that, those two camps gets saved by faith. There ain't nobody else after that that's, that covers an entire universe, right? So, while people are saved by faith, across the, across the landscape, as, as uh, Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you're a Jew in Israel, where's the uttermost parts of the earth to you? Earth to you? Yeah, Washington, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Dallas. I, I thought about not leaving Dallas in there because I'm not sure people in Dallas can be saved, but, you know, because of the cowboys, but I, I, think, I think they can. I think they can. All the earth. Other side of the planet. If you had Scottish roots, Irish roots, you were not saved by Celtic ideas. You were saved by faith in Christ. You repented, turned from idols. 
Africans were not saved by polytheism or animism. They turned from those things and accepted Jesus Christ. Native Americans were not saved by the totems. They turned from those and accepted Jesus Christ, right? There's one God, he's God of all. Because he will save Peter and Paul as Jews by faith. He will save Gentiles by faith, you and me by faith. You know, the crosses in Ireland, I don't know if you know this. If you've seen them, I think I have a picture of one somewhere. It's a cross with a round object behind them. You know, why that, you know what, that, what that is? Celts worship the sun. And when the gospel flooded into Ireland and they turned from worshiping the sun to worshiping the cross, they wanted to mark the fact of what they used to believe in and turn from to turn to. And they did it this way. So there's the sun that they used to worship and they wanted to remember we were there. We used to be that, but we are now believing in faith in Christ, in Christ alone. So no boasting. No boasting in our nationalities. Because anyone anywhere can come to Christ. Scripture says the kingdom of God is going to include every nation, every tribe, every tongue. God's work in saving mankind will include not just Jews, but every race, every nation. God is one. His grace extends to all. I don't know if you have done this. I've had the privilege of attending churches uh, overseas. Uh, here in America, we very rarely not see the kind of the you know, ma- mass amounts of uh, other nationalities in our, in our churches. But I've been in some overseas that when you walk in, it's like you're walking into the United Nations. All kinds of people, all kinds of garb, all kinds of languages, the dialects. It frankly is a picture of what the kingdom is going to be like. We better get used to that. We better learn to love that. We better learn to like that. See, this whole idea of the law of faith then garners a question. Well, Paul, are you saying that this whole law thing was just trash? That you're just throwing it out with the bathwater? That's one of the great criticisms of Christianity. If you're saying that you're saved by faith apart from the law, then you Christians are basically nullifying the law of Christ. You're saying it was the word, to say that God wasted his time giving us the law to begin with. And they went even further, saying, look, if you're going to drop kick the law of God out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the picture, then, then you are not going to know right from wrong anymore. You're going to wander through life just doing whatever you want to. You're going to end up being a bunch of immoral people. And Paul goes into this a whole lot more detail in Romans chapter 6, basically saying that when a person is genuinely saved, God gives them a new heart that motivates them to want to basically be what God wants them to to be, to basically be what God calls them, righteous. So we'll save the heavy lifting on that for them. But just right now, look what uh, Paul does. He says, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Does Christianity oppose the law that God handed down at Mount Sinai? Is that what you're saying here, Paul? Well, how does Christianity uphold the law? Well, the purpose of the law is to show us our sin, right? Show us our need for a savior and to lead us to faith in Christ. The law was to be a mirror. Mirrors don't save you. Mirrors show you who you are. And when they show you that you have spinach in your teeth or dirt on your face or in this season, cicadas in your hair, mirrors lead you to take action, realize that you need some cleansing. Man, I better wash my face. Better wash my hair. Better brush my teeth, better floss. The law is a mirror designed by God to show us we need cleansing that Christ accomplishes. This is why the book of Leviticus follows Exodus. Exodus is the law. Leviticus is the sacrifices you need to make to deal with the fact that you broke the law, right? No one, breaks, no one approaches God on their own, on their own merits. They offer up a sacrifice. The sin of the, you is laid on that animal and he dies for what you did and you are saved by the substitutionary death of another. That sounds like what Christ did, doesn't it? It's called Christianity. That's what the law was all pointed to. Christianity upholds the law's call for a Messiah. 
See, when, when, when Israel rebelled in the, in the desert, I mean, if you, watch, if you watch the Israel in the desert, they spent 40 extra years there because they were just rebellious rascals. Everyone that came out of, uh, of the uh, nation of Egypt had to die, basically, in the, uh, in the wilderness. A new generation came up. Only Moses and I think Caleb and Joshua made, made the trip the whole way. But the, in the desert, uh, there was a particular rebellion that just so irritated God so much that he said, here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I am going to kill all of them. I'm going to kill them all. I'll leave you. Everybody else is going to die right here. And then I'm going to, I'm going to start a new nation with you. We'll just raise up another nation. I can do that again. Did it with Israel. I can do it with you. And we'll go from there. And, and, and Moses says, no, 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 no. He gets in between God and the people. And he says, no, kill me instead. Spare the nation. I know they're knuckleheads. <laughs> I know they don't deserve it, but kill me instead. Spare them. And it's almost like God said, hey, that's a really cool illustration. I think I'm going to use that. And in Deuteronomy 18, God says this, I am going to raise up somebody. Somebody like Moses, who will stand in the gap between sinful people who have broken the law and me. Someone willing to die to save mankind from the penalty of the law. That person, surprise, surprise, was Jesus. The law of God was always intended that we would end up at Christ. Mark Twain once said this, again, funny. Hey, quit smoking? Not a problem. I've done it dozens of times. <laughs> okay, I'm going to make a law for myself that I'm going to stop smoking. Guess what? I broke it. Dozens of times. Faith in the law just gets you convicted. That's all it does. But when you put your faith in what Christ does, what the law leads you to, then the law has fulfilled its purpose. So where's boasting? Boasting in our accomplishments is gone. It's replaced by a law of faith based on what Christ has done. Boasting, if there is some, is to be about what Christ is, what Christ has done about the cross. Secondly, everybody on earth has an opportunity for faith in Christ. It's available to everyone. There's no person, no tribe, no nationality, no language, no race that God, is, that God considers less than. He will bring members of each into his kingdom. You and I would be dead wrong to consider anyone based on race as something less, something inferior, because God does not. So if you're here this morning, maybe you've understood the salvation message for the very first time. Maybe you, maybe you need to realize that it was in God's mind from the very beginning that whoever you are, this free gift of salvation was intended for you. The only requirement, the only requirement is that you be a sinner, right? Because heaven will be filled with the imperfect people Christ died for. There is not one thing that you've ever done that Jesus did not already die for. And you can stop. You can stop the useless exercise of trying to curry God's favor. Why? Because in Christ, God's already demonstrated that he favors you. You only need to trust his word on that. If you're a Christian here, do you really have faith in God, in Christ, in Christ alone? Or do you feel just a little proud just a little boastful that you were kind of smart enough to figure this out for yourself. Maybe you think God chose to save you because you were something kind of spectacular. Have you forgotten that he saved each of us without a reason, without a cause? He had no obligation to do so. And frankly, we gave him no reason to do so. Nothing in our resumes warranted salvation. No reason other than his love. His choice, 
his mercy, his grace, his son. As we take communion as followers of Christ, maybe it's a time to thank him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we believe it, we exercise faith. If there's someone here that does not have faith in you this morning, their faith is misplaced. Would you show them through your love, through your pulling, through your wooing, that you are the only way. There is no other God but you. You are one for the world. May your spirit descend on our hearts, change us from within, help our minds to grasp the awesomeness that is you. In Christ's name, amen.